Hey, I want to say thank you so much for your generosity. I got a letter from Crossroads, and uh, between Mother's Day and Father's Day, we did a baby bottle drive. And our church together put together uh, $1,300 to give to Crossroads. And so I, uh, I just so appreciate this church's generosity, and, and your giving is going to help mothers in crisis pregnancies. And so um, I, I believe in organizations like that. I believe in helping mothers in crisis pregnancies. And so I, I'm so thrilled by your generosity. Well, let me say hello t- again to everybody watching online. I know that Harry and Janie are probably at home uh, watching online, and probably Debbie Vaughn is probably there watching online as well. So hello, everybody, and we're just so glad that you're joining us. We are going to be in Psalm chapter 91. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 91. We are going through a series in the book of Psalms, as many of you know, and we're reading through the book of Psalms, all 150 Psalms uh, throughout the summer. If, you're, if you haven't been following along or you're behind and you missed a few days, you know, I believe that God is gracious, and if you begin now, he will credit you for the rest. And so uh, just jump in wherever you're at. Don't worry about trying to make up uh, the lost, you know, reading that you haven't done, but just jump in wherever you're at because God has a word for you that is for today. He wants to refresh you. He wants to fill you up, and uh, he wants to show himself new to you. So I'm excited. This psalm is a, a powerful psalm. It's a strong psalm, and uh, we, we read this psalm in moments of crisis, and we read this psalm when we need faith uh, for protection or for safety or for healing. And um, we're gonna read this together, Psalm 91, the whole thing. So are you there with me in your Bibles? Here we go, Psalm 91. I'm in the NIV version. Uh, I don't know what versions you have, but I'm reading from the NIV. Whoever Whoever dwells, some of your translations say abide. Whoever dwells or abides in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Interesting, there's already four names of the Lord that we see in here. You see the Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, and my God. All of these names represent a different aspect of God's protection in our lives, his authority in our lives. Verse 3, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. If anybody was thinking about getting a tattoo, that might be something to put right there on your your side. Maybe the thousand, right? Ten thousand on your right shoulder or something like that. I've thought about it before. You, I don't know how everybody feels about tattoos in this room, but I'm going to keep going. Verse 8. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Verse 9. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Does that verse sound familiar to some of you? You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. I will call on him, and I will answer him. Get this. I will be with him in trouble. 
I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91 is a song of safety and security. But the key to experiencing God's divine protection that we see in this psalm is found in the first verse. It's found in the first verse. It's ultimately a song about abiding, a song about dwelling or remaining in God or resting in God. We'll talk, we're, I'm going to talk a little bit more about abiding in a moment, but I wanted to make a couple comments about some of the images that we see within this psalm. Notice how verse 15 says, I will be with him in trouble. Wait a second. We just read an entire psalm that talked about how no evil will, will befall us. No harm will come to us. We're going to avoid trouble. So why is God saying he's going to be with me in trouble if we just read a psalm that says no evil is going to befall me? I'm not going to experience trouble, right? Wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's a good answer. We need to be honest and, and address the elephant in the room, I think, this morning. Uh, that, that, that we have just gone through and we are in the midst of, of a season where we have seen followers of Jesus die to a disease. Followers of Jesus die to a pandemic. And the reality is that bad things still happen to God's people. So why is this psalm, what is this psalm talking about? Where can I put my hope in this psalm? I read this and, and as I'm honest, it, it fills me with faith. When I read these words, it fills me with faith. It fills me with encouragement and courage. But then there's this, there's this reality. There's this, there's this person in the back of my head says, but wait, that has not been your experience. Does anybody else read the psalm like that? That you think, this has not been my experience, but this is a promise that God is giving me. Let me explain this a bit more. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put on a little professor hat. So will you go with me uh, down this rabbit trail, down this journey back to the book of Exodus? I wanna explain uh, this psalm a little bit more because this psalm actually has a very rich uh, history to it. It has a very uh, a rich context to it. In our Bible, the book of Psalm is, is one giant book. We read the book of Psalms as one book in the Bible, but in the Hebrew, the book of Psalms is actually five separate books. And uh, Psalm 91 uh, is in the fourth book of the Psalms. And we know by reading the chapter before this, this Psalm, in Psalm chapter 90, it's the beginning of the fourth book. And the title at the top of the Psalm attributes the authorship to Moses. And as you read the fourth book of the Psalms, which are Psalms 90 through Psalms 106, you'll notice that that's the fourth book of the Psalms, they really highlight Moses, and they highlight the Exodus, and there's images of, of Israelites in exile and, and Israelites uh, coming out of Egypt. Moses is very much highlighted in the fourth book of Psalms. And so when you read Psalm 91... If you were a, a Jew or a Hebrew, when you read uh, Psalm 91, you would immediately think of, of, of verses found in Deuteronomy 27 through 28, which is the covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant. It's when Moses came off of Mount Sinai with the law, and God told Moses to build an altar. He said, I want you to build an altar that your generation, that generation after generation might look at this altar and they would remember the promises of God. They would remember the covenant of the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, God gives the people of God, he gives Israel a list of promises that if you follow my commands 
and you are faithful to the commands I've given you and you follow my words, this is the bless. These are the blessings that will follow you. You will not be harmed by your enemies. You will overtake, you will have victory over your enemies. You will not be harmed by the pestilence or the plague. No, no evil will befall you. These are the promises for God's people if they follow to his word, to the Mosaic covenant. And then he goes on to list also the curses that will come if you do not follow the, the commands of God. It's kind of a, a heavy moment in the book of Deuteronomy where God says, if you don't follow my commands, you will be overtaken by the enemy. You will experience the, the pestilence and the plagues, and these things will befall you. But when you read Psalm 91 in conjunction with Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you will see in every single verse of Psalm 91 how it alludes to Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and the Mosaic covenant of the Lord. See, book four of the Psalms, it aims to encourage Jewish, Jewish persons in exile to return to the promises of God. Psalm 91 was original. How many of you know that the Bible was written for you, but it wasn't written to you, right? That the author of, of each book, the author of each verse had an audience that they were writing to, a specific context that they were talking about. But the Bible is for you. It just wasn't written to you. So it's our job as readers in a modern day to, to interpret scripture accurately. But the original intent for Psalm 91 was to encourage Jews who are walking away from the law of God to return to the commands of God so that they can experience the blessings found in Psalm 91. So it wasn't written to me, but does Psalm 91 still apply to us today? Can we still apply it to our lives today? Absolutely, yes. And I would say that Psalm 91 is even more profound now on this side of grace, on this side of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus under a new covenant of Jesus. Psalm 91 is even more profound today. Well, when did we receive this new covenant or this new promise? We received it when Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses and, and introduced to us a new covenant. Uh, I, I pointed out as we were reading Psalm 91 and verse 11, that there's a verse that might uh, be familiar. It says that, for he shall give angels charge over you in verse 11. And you may have noticed that this is the verse that the devil quoted to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Psalm 91 is what the devil quoted to Jesus in order to get Jesus to, to cast himself. He brings Jesus to this, to this high place and that's overlooking the land. He says, all of this can be yours. All of this I will give to you if you will cast yourself off of this high place. And he says, because doesn't the Bible say that the angels will catch you and you shall not dash your foot against the stone? See, the devil came to Jesus in a moment of, of, uh, in a moment of, of weakness, of, of, of frailty, that G Jesus is hungry. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days without food. He's hungry. And the devil comes to him and says, hey, turn this rock, turn this stone into bread and eat it. Hey, what, cast yourself off of this high place and, and let this, see what the devil was doing in that moment? He was trying to get Jesus to surrender his humanity to give it up. 
The devil was saying, you don't have to do this. You're God. So just, so just give up the humanity that you're, trying to, that you're trying to exercise, that you're trying to live out, and just turn this stone into bread. You're hungry. You're God. You can do it, okay? It, you know what? You don't have to suffer and go to the cross, Jesus. I know, uh, I know, that, 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 you, you know that you, that you want to live this life as a human, but you know what? Just, just give it all up. Just exercise your divinity and put, put your humanity aside. The devil was trying, to give, was, was trying to get Jesus to give up his humanity in this moment. But you know what Jesus did? He quoted the word of God, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quoted it right back to the devil and said, no, no, no. The Bible says you will not test the Lord. The Bible says you will worship him only. And, and Jesus stood the test of time. What he did was he stood on the word of God, and in that moment, he was fully embracing his humanity, clinging to the commands of God, clinging to the, to the Mosaic covenant, obeying the word of God, and he was fully embracing his humanity. And get this, church, in this moment, Jesus, was beca- Jesus has become the recipient of the blessings of the covenant and the giver at the same time. He is fully human, fully embraces hum- his humanity that's, that does not sin, that stays true to the word of God. He becomes the recipient of the covenant of Moses and at the same time, he is the giver of the covenant. And by doing that, Jesus becomes the arbiter of a new covenant and has the authority by fulfilling the law of Moses perfectly, to a T, without blemish, without sin. He fulfilled the law of Moses throughout the course of his entire life. By fulfilling the law of Moses, he becomes the one who has the authority to give us a new covenant. Because by going to the cross, he put to death the old covenant after and ushered in a new covenant, a covenant of grace, a covenant of relationship with the Lord. See, under the new covenant... Christ is always with us. He comforts us. He helps us in our need. And the Spirit grows us until, he, he grows in us daily until the time of our perfection when our bodies will no longer be frail and weak. See, God does not promise to protect us from every plague or every pandemic during our journey here on earth, but he does promise to be with us until the end of the age and to do good for us and not harm, and despite all circumstances, to leave us with an unshakable hope. And he does promise that one day we won't deal with disease and plagues and pestilence. One day we are going to experience a life of, of new bodies in a, in, a, in, a, in a place with God where there is no sickness, where there is no sin. He's promised us glory. He's promised us et- eternal life. It's no longer death to die. Instead, death means entering into eternal life, into a glorious immortality with the Lord. And this promise is better than anything in the old covenant. Now, church, hear me, hear me right that I don't, uh, I'm not saying that we have to wait until we die to experience true freedom from sickness and disease. I think the Bible gives us authority through the power of the Holy Spirit and gives us permission and 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 commissions us to pray for the sick and to raise the dead and, and, and to see lepers cleanse. I, I don't think we have any lepers wandering around afraid of, but, but to see demons cast out. And, and, and we are charged with a commission to, to exercise the power of the Holy Spirit and bring the kingdom of God here to earth 
now. I believe that with my whole heart. But the reality is, is we don't fully see that. Not every, we, every time we pray for somebody, it doesn't happen every time we pray for somebody, does it? And, and, and the reality is, is that we live in a kingdom that is here on earth. God has given us the authority through the Holy Spirit to, to see the kingdom of heaven here on earth and to pull it down now. But the reality is, is that it's not completely fulfilled, right? That there will come a day when we will see the full extent of the freedom of God, the full extent of freedom from sin and sickness and disease one day when we die. So when we read Psalm 91, it should give us hope that God has removed the most terrible thing. I mean, ultimately, death, it was the ultimate power. And Jesus just took that out of the equation and says, okay, I've removed death from the equation. Now what is there to fear? I've removed death from, from, from I've, moved the, I've removed the fear of death from your life. So now what is there to fear? You have ultimate power, ultimate authority because Jesus conquered death we have nothing to fear when we dwell or we abide within God's presence but this is the key church that we are still called to dwell and to remain in God and to abide in his presence but what does this mean what does it mean to abide in God what does it mean to remain in him to dwell in him to rest in him see I said at the beginning, this psalm is ultimately a song about abiding in God's presence. So in John 15, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15. Jesus, he uses the imagery of tending to a vineyard to explain what it means to abide. It's a beautiful passage. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Again, I'm reading through the NIV. Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you, or abide in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in the vine. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to my disciples. See, what does it mean to abide or remain in God? Abiding is not this organic, effortless relationship between you and God. It doesn't just happen, right? Much like tending to a vineyard, Jesus is talking about how it's an intentional commitment to grow and to bear fruit. And get this, every time that Jesus refers to abiding or remaining in me, in verse 7 of John 15 and verse 10, when Jesus talks about abiding in me, he, talks, he relates it to keeping his commands, to keeping his word. Does this sound familiar? To, to the ex, to Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 that, that, and, and, what, and what Psalm says, Psalm 91 says, abide in me. What, is, what does that mean? It means to keep the laws of God, to keep the commands of God. 
Abiding, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Abiding in God means experiencing intimacy and fellowship with him by obeying his word. The word of God, the Bible. Experiencing intimacy and fellowship with him by obeying his word. See, we live in biblically illiterate times. And I believe that there's, there's such little value for the word of God now. There's such little value for the Bible because how, of how offensive some passages are to our current culture. The Bible is offensive to some. But the reality is, is that God has an opinion about the way we should live. God has an opinion about the way you should live when it comes to money. God says that there is a right way and a wrong way to use money. When it comes to marriage and sex, God says there is a right way and a wrong way. God has an opinion about how you parent your children, how you choose your friends, how you conduct yourself in public. He has an opinion about the calling of your life and how you choose to spend the last few years, the last few years that you have on earth. See, I just, bought, I just bought a new smoker, a new smoke grill. Does anybody else have a smoker in the room? Uh, I've never owned a smoker before. And so I had no idea how to turn it on, no idea where the pellets go or how to use it. So, so what do I do? I refer to the manual, don't I? And so I, I opened it up, I put it together, it's on my deck, and now I don't know how to use it. So I open up the manual and it says, okay, here are some settings that you want to use. Here are some recommendations that you want to use. If you're going to cook a thick cut of steak, these are the settings that you want to use on your new smoker. Now, if you want to cook a pork butt, here are some other settings that you should use. If you want your food to turn out well, here's some recommendations for your food to turn out good. And then the manual also includes some warnings for me. It says, don't put charcoal in your smoker. It's not made for that. Don't put charcoal in your smoker. It also tells me, don't stick your temperature gauge in the smoker when it's above 500 degrees because your temperature gauge will get ruined if you leave it in there over 500 degrees. And so my smoker comes with these instructions and these recommendations and these warnings. And if I want my food to turn out well, I'm going to listen to the manufacturer's recommendations, right? His instructions. You know what? Nothing is stopping me from sticking charcoal in my grill, right? It's my grill. I can do what I want with my grill, right? <laughs> Nothing is stopping me from sticking charcoal in my grill. Nothing is stopping me from cooking my meat the way that I want to. I'm just going to do it however I want to. Nothing's stopping me. But if I, want, if I want the fruit of my labor to turn out well, I'm going to listen to the recommendations. If I don't want to ruin my grill, my smoker, I'm going to listen to the warnings, right? The Bible the Bible is this way. And I don't know about you, but if I believe in a God who created the world, then I'd want to know how he intended us to interact with him and the people around us. This is what the Bible is. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says this. All scripture is inspired or God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is instruction. It's encouragement. It's, it's the right way to live life, the way that God has designed. He's created the earth a certain way that functions, and if you want to live within the harmony of how he created the earth, how he designed the earth, you're going to follow the instructions that God has given us but it's your life. You could do whatever you want. 
You can make the decisions you want. But God says, hey, if you do your own thing and if you live the way that you think is right and don't follow my instructions, it's not going to turn out so well for you. But we live in a culture that says, I don't need God's word to tell me what to do. It's my life. I'm gonna live the way that I wanna live. We live in a comfort culture. And believing God's word means you're going to upset some people. And not everyone's going to like you because your beliefs are not that of the majority. But let me remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13. He said, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now you may be thinking, but pastor, some of the things that I read in the Bible, they don't seem conducive to what I believe about God and his character. Many people do that. Many people worship a God of their own imagination, but he's not the one true God. See, we want and we hope and we pray that God fits into our little life, into our beliefs, into our little box, so we can make God into our image instead of the reverse. The Bible says that you were created in the image of God, but instead we try to make God in our own image. We try to fit him into our preferences, into our desires, and into our little box. See, our experiences and beliefs and behaviors, they should always rise up to the standard of the Bible. Here's what happens oftentimes is, is the word of God is way up here, and it has this, this calling for the life of believers. Now, church, hear me, hear me on this, that I do not believe in a faith that is all about works, that you cannot earn your way to heaven, you cannot earn the love of the Father, uh, you cannot earn grace. It is a gift that is freely given to you. You don't do anything. You didn't do anything to deserve it. God says that while you were still sinners, he died for you, and all you have to do is accept the person of Jesus Christ, and you, and, and you embrace what the instructions that he's given to you, and you will spend eternity with God. I'm not saying that we live in, in a faith of works, but what I am saying is that God has a standard for your life that will benefit you, that will bring you the most goodness, that will bring you the most blessing, he wants you to bless the world. He wants you to tell other people about him. He wants you to feel empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be fully equipped. But you can't do that unless you are, uh, unless you are satisfied, unless you are uh, saturated by the word of God. And you allow that to become the standard of your life. And so we have the word of God up here that tells us our instructions and tells us the way that we live life. And, and we live in this culture that, that, that trains our minds and trains our hearts and our attitudes and our preferences to live down here. And we look up at the word of God and we go, man, those are really unrealistic expectations, God. I, I don't know if I agree with that. God, maybe you meant something else. Maybe, maybe I'm gonna find somebody, I'm gonna go to a church that interprets the Bible the way that I think it should be interpreted that makes me feel good. So what I'm gonna do is I'm actually gonna I'm just gonna lower the standard of the Bible until it gets to the level of my life. Ah, oh, oh, there we go. That feels good. The pressure's off. There's no unrealistic expectations on my life. I can continue living the way that I wanna live. Do, 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 do. We do that. But what God is asking us is we, we look up at the Bible and we go, man, those are high expectations, God. I don't know, you know, I need your Holy Spirit to help me to get there. God, would you show me, search my heart, weed out the things in my life so that I become more like Jesus? God, oh, okay, you're ripping that out of my life. That, that's a belief that I, I didn't think needed to go. 
there was something wrong there. I didn't know that that was wrong. Oh, that hurt, but okay, I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna live, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep raising the standard of my life to the standard of scripture until my life matches the scripture's standards. We're called to do that, church. We're called to read the word of God and say that's the model. The person of Jesus is the model. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna live my life. I'm gonna raise my life up to the standard of scripture instead of doing the opposite where we bring scripture down to our level. This is why we have to all become theologians, church. All of us, we all need to be theologians. Theology is the study of God. And we all need to learn the art of Bible study, of studying God. The Bible was written for you, like I said before, but it wasn't written to you, which is why it's vital that we have an understanding of the original context of, of who wrote the book, who is the author, who did he write it to, what was the historical setting around at the time, and we learn good hermeneutics, that's what we call how to accurately read the Bible, we learn good theology. And so many people, they have no idea how to accurately read the Bible. And if you truly wanna know God, you can't take my word for it, you need to go to the source and study the Bible at home, because church, I'm, I get things wrong. I'm fallible, I'm not Jesus. And so if you look to the pastor, you look to somebody else, or you look to a podcast or somebody else to help you interpret scripture, that person is going to get it wrong at some point. But instead, we're supposed to lean on the person of the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we're supposed to learn the tools to accurately interpret scripture. I, I, I told my wife, I think this fall, I'm, I, I feel led to, to lead a course through just how to study the Bible and, and, and feel free to hop into that with me. But, but I, I'm not perfect at this. I get things wrong all the time. But I feel a passion and a calling to help people accurately interpret Scripture. And there's a few tools that I, can, that I use that I can help, help you with. If you, if you look at the Bible and you open it up and you're like, I have no idea what this means. I have no idea what, 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 what Paul is saying or what Jesus is saying. I, I need help figuring this out. I, I, I would love to come alongside you this fall and, and, and lead a class that's all about how to study the Bible. And we can take that step together. We can go through that journey together. Abiding in God. Abiding in God means to experience intimacy and fellowship with God that comes when we obey his word. So when you abide, there's a few things that happen when you abide. When you dwell in God and when, you, uh, when you're faithful to his word and, you, and you, want, you want that intimacy and that fellowship with God and, and dwell in his presence and his word, medita you meditate on it, you're thinking about it as you're lying in bed and when you wake up, you're so excited to just be in the presence of God. Abiding in God, when you abide in God, some things happen. Here are three things I have for you this morning. When you abide, you experience, number one, pruning. <laughs> you experience pruning when you abide in God. Notice in John 15 that when Jesus is talking about intimate fellowship with him, he tells them plainly, listen, I am the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me and I will remain in you. The first thing that Jesus talks about when he's talking about intimate fellowship, he mentions pruning away the things that steal your fruit. One of the first, in verse two of Psalm 15, he says he cuts away everything that doesn't produce fruit. The first thing that Jesus talks about when he's talking about an intimate fellowship, abiding, remaining in him, he's talking about pruning. Pruning is a good thing, but it doesn't always feel so good, does it? 
See, I believe in the past 18 months through 2020 and into 2021, God has picked up the shears and he's pruning his people. He is pruning his people. Church, I believe that God is taking the church to a place where only mature believers can go. I believe God is taking the church to a place where only people who are willing to be pruned can go. Politics, a pandemic, there's been wildfires, there's been not being able to come to church physically. See, all of these external forces have revealed unhealthy things within the church that God wants to prune away. And I believe that God wants to prune away fear. I think what this last season has shown us, and if you would just allow me to kind of to give my, I, I, believe, that, I believe that God has just been showing this to the church, and, and I've been talking to other pastors and listening to other podcasts, and, and there seems to be this theme, but there has been a foundation of fear within the church. And I believe that God wants to prune that away. Because depending on who's our president or who's in the office, we have one group of people that are fearful of what's going to happen because this president is in office. And then we get a new president, and then the opposite side begins to experience fear once again. Oh, uh, what's going to happen? And, and we live in fear. There's been a foundation of fear. And, 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 and some of you might be looking at me saying, but Pastor, I don't live in fear. I don't live in fear, but, but, but then when a, a pandemic comes, there's, there's some people who, who it, I'm saying it's, it's okay to be cautious, but it's not okay to live in fear. And, and there's been people who are afraid of the pandemic, and the people who say that they're not afraid of the pandemic, when they come out with a vaccine, they say, well, I'm not taking that vaccine. You don't have no idea what they put in that vaccine. And they're afraid of the vaccine. And there's been this foundation of fear that has is, that is crept into our church and, and it's a found, it, 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 when we talk about things like mercy and compassion, and we talk about things like, uh, we, we relate some of those things to our political system. Have we, become, have we come so far that things like compassion and mercy are related to one political side or the other, that, that our, our political views drive us instead of our, our, our identity as, as children of God, as people who follow Jesus? God wants to prune away fear. He wants to take that. He wants to prune away racism or racist thoughts or racist tendencies. He wants to prune away our pride. He wants to prune away religion. All the things that we think we use to experience God and we rely on it so much to get our fill of God. God says, I want to take that away so you can really experience me. He wants to prune away religion from our lives. He wants to prune away consumerism where we're driven by the material and even, even I, I'm guilty of this too. When I come to church, I wanna be comfortable and I, be, I want my needs to be met and when I worship, I want, God's, I want God to fill me up and I want him to encounter me. But ultimately, when we worship God, it, it's for the purpose of honoring him of ministering to his heart, of lifting him up. And God wants to prune away that consumerism, consumerism in all of our hearts. He's picking up the shears, church. And even now, maybe some of you are, are, are maybe there's some offense building up in some of you. And you're thinking, how dare you, pastor? How dare you talk about that? You know, I believe God is, God is doing a work and that we need to be open to the pruning that happens. It's a good thing, church. Yeah, it hurts, and it doesn't feel good. But he wants to prune those things away. Abiding in God means approaching the Bible with the understanding 
that something is going to be cut away to make room for the truth in your life. It may hurt. It may, cost, it may come at the cost of comfort or the cost of inclusion, but knowing God intimately is worth the price. He wants to prune away the things in your life so you could know him intimately. Oftentimes, it's our perception of Jesus that is actually in the way of experiencing the real Jesus. Oftentimes, it's our ideas of what we think God is like that is in the way of actually experiencing what he's really like. Pruning. When you abide, you experience pruning. When you abide, you experience alignment or training. See, there's a practice in growing grapes. My wife and I, we just moved from Newburgh, Oregon. It's the Willamette Valley. It's wine country, and one of my good friends owns uh, one of the most beautiful vineyards in all the Willamette Valley uh, called Durant Vineyards. It's Red Ridge Farms, and uh, we would just love going on date nights to this, this vineyard. They have olive oil tasting, and, and, and so this, this uh, in fact, when we did church online in, in Newburgh, uh, we filmed all of our um, online content at the, at the winery in one of his event spaces. And it was just amazing to go there for a whole year, basically. I'd, I'd, go, I'd get up and go to work, but I went to a beautiful vineyard. <laughs> and I would talk to these, these vineyard, to these, to these gardeners, these master winers, these master gardeners, and, and they'd tell me a little bit about how tricky it is to grow grapes. But one of the practices uh, that, that goes into growing grapes, it involves training the branches to go in a particular direction. Often the gardeners will allow the main vine to grow along the ground, but then he directs the branches to lift up into the air so they can bear fruit. And so he'll take branches from off the ground off of the true vine and he'll lift them up and he'll string them up and he'll train the, vine, he'll train the branches to go up so they can bear fruit. See, abiding in God is an invitation from him to teach us his ways and to align our thoughts and our desires with his thoughts and his desires. It, when, we, when we abide in God, it is an invitation of, of God saying, hey, I want you to come into my presence I want you to, to be in my word and I want you to learn the way that I think. I want you to learn what I love and learn what I hate and learn what I desire for your life. Learn what's true and what's right. I'm gonna train you. I'm gonna align you. Some of you might be thinking about it, but we can't know the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And then Paul says this, but we have the mind of Christ. With the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to think like God, to know his thoughts, his desires, his wishes. Does that mean you're gonna know everything that God wants to do? Absolutely not. But God invites us to know him in an intimate way to where our thoughts and our hearts and our desires align with God's thoughts and his desires. Did you hear that, church? You have the mind of Christ. Right. Meaning that you have the ability to know what God's opinions and desires are for your life. See, when I first started dating Christina, uh, I didn't know her desires or her preferences very well. And I got very nervous. I'd, I'd be about to go pick her, out, pick her up on a date and I'd be buying flowers at Safeway. And I'd be like, oh, does she like carnations? Does she like roses? Should I get her pink or white? 
or what, you know, because I, I wanted to make her feel loved. I wanted to make, and I would get nervous when thinking about where I'm going to take her on a date. Does she like seeing movies? Does she want to sit outside? Does she want to go on a hike? What does she want to do? I didn't know her desires or her preferences, but the more time I spend with her, the more time you spend with God, you get to know his desires and his preferences, and the more I spend time with my wife, I know that she loves peanut M&Ms and she hates Twizzlers. So if you want to get my wife some candy, get her some peanut M&Ms. She loves sunflowers and peonies. Those are some of her favorite flowers. My wife, she'd prefer to sit outside at a restaurant than see a movie in the theater. Because when you're watching a movie, she doesn't like how you can't talk with one another and interact with one another. I think there's probably a lot of ladies in the room like that. Am I right? See, the more time I spend with her, the more I discover her. The same is true with God. The more time you spend with him, the more you discover him. And you learn what he likes and what he doesn't like. The things that he approves of and the things that he doesn't approve of. And his desires become your desires. His thoughts become your thoughts. So when you abide, you experience pruning. You experience alignment. And here's a promise of God. When you abide, you also experience authority. Fruit. There's fruit in your life. When you abide in God, he abides in you. Jesus says, remain in me as I remain in you. But, but when we read about abiding in God, God's talking about following his word, right? Hearing his commands, understanding and obeying his commands. There's, there's, there's nothing that we say or write that Jesus has to follow or, or obey, correct? When Jesus talks about remaining in you, he's referring to the Holy Spirit in your life. Abide in me and my spirit will remain in you. It will produce fruit. It will give you authority. That, that my Holy Spirit wants to help you interpret Scripture, wants to help train you to interact with people in a way that God approves. The Holy Spirit is here as a comforter. The Holy Spirit is here to help guide you. I think we rely so much on our own abilities and our own strength when we have the Spirit of God to lean on. We don't understand that there is no junior varsity Holy Spirit. That, that, that Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus, that raised people from the dead, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that cast demons out, is the same Holy Spirit that abides in you, that dwells in you. We think, no, Jesus had the varsity Holy Spirit. I got the JV version. I got the beginner version. I got the practice version, right? No, that's not true. You have the same Holy Spirit living in you, and when you abide in God, you become connected with the reality that the Holy Spirit lives in me. I have authority. God has given me authority. He wants to bear fruit in my life, and I don't have to lean on my own strength. I don't have to determine for my life what's right or what's wrong. I don't have to listen to the thoughts and the whims of culture and society to tell me which way to go in life. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the word of God to lean on, and that is my truth. That is my source of life. That is my strength and my comfort. Would you stand with me, church? I want to pray for you. There's a couple questions at the bottom of the handout that I gave, uh, that I gave to you, and I, I want all of you, uh, I would like us all just to close our eyes in this moment. And before I pray, 
I feel like this, these are some questions that maybe you should ask as you go home as well, as you spend time uh, in the word of God. I'd encourage you to maybe even start a journal if you don't have a journal already and begin writing what God is speaking to you. But, but here's the question that I ask is, is there anything in your life that God is revealing he needs to prune away in this season? Is there something that needs to be pruned away? Maybe God has been, there's been a theme. Maybe, maybe people have been coming up to you saying, hey, I don't know about this in your life, or hey, this is something that uh, I've noticed in your life, or maybe God has just been poking you, he's been prodding you, he's saying, hey, there's something here that I want to take away, and it's blocking, it's hindering you from experiencing me, from experiencing the truth and experiencing freedom. Is there something in your life that God wants to prune away? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would strip us of our pride. Strip us of perfectionism. That we don't have to be perfect. You desire a pursuit. You desire us to pursue you. You don't desire perfection. So Father, we pursue you. We say what Psalm 139 says, what David said in the psalm, search me, God. Know my anxious thoughts. Find out what's inside of my heart that I didn't know was there and begin the pruning process. I don't care how much it hurts. I don't care what it costs. I don't care if I have to give up inclusion or comfort. Father, begin a pruning process in me. And if it's my idea of Jesus, if it's my idea of God that's in the way, God, begin to break down that religious wall, that thing that's keeping me from your presence. God, I pray for every person in this room who has a desire to go deeper with you. God, I pray for those, just like you said in in Matthew, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God, make us hungry. Make us thirsty. Make us passionate about you. God, I pray for every person who's struggling with the word of God, who reads the Bible, and they can't agree with everything in the Bible. And and, and it's... It's, it causes them to doubt their faith a little bit. It causes them to wander away and to seek people in their life who kind of are in the same stream of thought. Father, bring us back to your word. I pray that, Father, you would open up their eyes to the authority of scripture. God, that this is your word. These are your instructions to your people. This is what we should live by. No matter the cost, no matter how uncomfortable it may be, God, open up our eyes to your word. Help us to accurately interpret your word and apply it to our lives. We want you, Jesus. And Father, we know we're not gonna get everything right, and we thank you that your grace is there to catch us in those moments, that the pursuit of you is enough, that our love and desire to be with you is enough, we don't have to earn our way for your, for your affection. God, you love us immeasurably already. It's not what we're talking about, but Father, I just want to be known by you, and I want to know you the deepest way I can. Bless this church, God. Bless, these, bless these one, this wonderful family as we continue to read your word, as we continue to abide and remain in you. In Jesus' name we pray.